Thank you for joining us for the Ravenswood Baptist Church Podcast with Pastor Dustin Moore. We are a Bible-believing, grace-driven church located on the north side of Chicago. As a church, we are passionate about making disciples of all people for the glory of God. If you would like more information about our ministry, visit ravenswoodbaptist.org. Now, here's Pastor Dustin. Well, I I will uh, tell you this morning, and find your place, if you will, Joshua 24. You got a handout there that I believe you would have received when you came in. I sat in my office this week, and I thought, man, there is, in the last two or three months, and this happens on occasion as a pastor, uh, every message is important. I'll tell you that every message, obviously, is important. God's Word is always important. But there's an urgency sometimes that I feel as a pastor to a text, to a message that I'm going to bring that... Boy, I'm thrilled and I'm excited. And really, I just, I almost want to go to every person in our church's house and say, please don't miss Sunday. Please don't miss Sunday. And when I was driving in this morning, uh, the Lord reminded me uh, that uh, as it was a a torrential downpour uh, coming in, the Lord reminded me that uh, I always think something is more important than the other, but the Lord knows exactly who's going to be here on a Sunday. And the Lord knows exactly who needs to hear this message? And so uh, I, I, I want to just ask you to, to bear with me. And, and that way, too, it's also a different message because there's no points. I've got no, like, one, two, three points today. i got application for you. But it's one giant message without three points that takes us to a conclusion that I think we need to hear and see. But really... Really what we're beginning to, to do is we're, gonna, we're landing the plane on the study of the book of Joshua. And as a church like ours that is committed to exposition and uh, biblical exposition, next chapter, next verse, uh, kind of study of God's Word, uh, we flow into chapter 24 of Joshua. It's the last chapter of the book. Uh, this, is the, this is the 28th message of the book of Joshua that we've had. And I think we'll go to 29. We might even get to 30. Uh, but uh, really, today's message was supposed to be a larger text than it was. But as I got into preparation for it, uh, it, it became really clear that we needed to bring the, the, the text down. So bear with me today. And, and I think for, the, for the, the mature Christian today, as well as maybe the newer Christian, this message is really important because it's, it's a strong It's a strong reminder to you and I of what God is accomplishing in what we refer to as the story of Scripture, the redemptive story. Uh, It's a reminder to us that the Bible is not a disjointed book of tales that have been put together for us. It is one story with one author and one hero. And that's what we're going to see today and be reminded of You've been here for six and a half years. Nothing that I'm going to say today is new. But for everybody in here, even myself, it's a reminder for us. So here we go to chapter 24, and we need to be, again, reminded that we come out of 24, excuse me, we come out of chapter 23 into 24, and in chapter 23 was a, was a Joshua's first farewell speech. He, as I told you last week, he gives two speeches. In 23, he gives one. In 24, he gives one. In 23, Joshua had gathered the elders and the heads of the tribes and the judges and the officers, and he had met with them, and he had challenged them. He had challenged them. If you will, Joshua is an old man, 
probably about 110. Uh, definitely dies. We know he dies at 110. But at that time, he's older and could be at the end of his life. And he pours his heart out, challenging and reminding them of the faithfulness of God. We, we saw that last week. He challenged Israel by way of the leaders to pursue God, to pursue God's will for Israel. He called them to not, uh, he called them to love the Lord and to serve Him with their whole hearts and lives and then not to turn away, not to turn to the left or to the right, to not worship the false gods of the pagan Canaanites. And because Joshua loves them, he had served them faithfully now for easily anywhere between 50 to 70 years. He warns them. And in so doing, he reminds them that the Lord will bring good. The Lord will bring good to those who live in honor to Him and to the covenant they've made with God. And the Lord will, in this warning, will punish those who violate the covenant that Israel made with God. Now, I'll be honest with you. I'm not big on making the Bible a leadership book. I don't believe that that's God's primary intention is to create a leadership manual for people. But by way of introduction, I do want to encourage you today. If you're a leader in any fashion, if you're a, a parent, a, a, a leader in our church, a, 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 a leader at, at work, a leader in any part of society, specifically I'm thinking today as a pastor of parents, grandparents, and leaders in any way within Christian ministry. I want to encourage you to look at Joshua in these final moments of his life as a good model from which we can pattern our leadership. But to the husband, the, the dad, the mom, uh, the, 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 the leader in church, the Awana leader this fall, the, the youth leader. There's a, there's a, a, a model here that's given from Joshua uh, uh, by way of how to model the communication of truth of the Lord and of Scripture. For example, reminding our children of the faithfulness of God, parents should be normative in our home. Should be normative. For a husband to remind his wife in intense moments, maybe it's finances or pressures, to remind one another of the faithfulness of God. I ask you today, does your home reflect a place where prayers center on how good and faithful God has been to you and yours? Are, are, we, teaching, are we teaching it in our church on a consistent basis? Since God's faithfulness is a key theme of Scripture, shouldn't our sermons, shouldn't our messages, our encouragement center on that same faithfulness? As a leader today, whoever you are, whomever you are, are you leading those that follow you? Are you leading them to pursue God? Are you leading them to pursue His will and His word and His honor? Maybe you can't make that known so clearly at work. Maybe you, the days of standing on a table in the break room and preaching the gospel are, are beyond our society. But the way in which you work with the people at work and the way in which you lead your team, is there a sense, as the Christian principle said, is there a sense of good works that glorify God? A sense that you're pursuing something more than 
making money or advancing a career? Is there a sense that there's something more about you? What about your home, your marriage? Pursuing the Lord's honor in every area, single adults, it could be in your dating life. Is there, is there something about the way that you live and you lead that is totally different than anything this world sees? Are we willing to be lovingly direct about the promise of blessing on those who believe the gospel and trust Christ? We find that in Joshua's final moments, the, the, the loving, direct, blunt way in which Joshua says, if you're unfaithful to the covenant that you've made, you need to know that God will take you out of the good land. My friends, are we, as Christians, are we faithful and loving to communicate with grace and charity and kindness, but urgency the truthfulness of the gospel? Joshua models for us what loving and bold leadership looks like. In fact, you and I can go to Jesus, and then we can look backwards to Joshua. And you know what we find? Joshua is giving you and I a foretaste into the life and ministry of Jesus. One who, speaking of Jesus, who is in the human, he is the human manifestation of the faithful God. He is himself faithful, yet Jesus is also pointing to the faithful Father and the coming Spirit. He's pointing to the Spirit who is, who is faithful to comfort and lead and empower Christians. This faithful triune God finds its glory revealed in Jesus. Yet this Christ, it's not soft on the truth. He's not ambivalent. He's not apathetic. He is the truth. And His Holy Spirit leads those that... Come to Him for salvation into all truth. And so Jesus, the leader, if I can say it like that, He never fails to warn of coming judgment. He's clear on the promises of the gospel, but also the implications on those who reject His salvation. Jesus is clear. And so I say to the leaders in here this morning, I say to Christians in general, if our deepest desire is Christ's likeness, then you and I must be willing to call our children to obedience to Scripture. Our, 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 in our desire to be Christ-like, we must pursue God and lead our, those that follow us to pursue God and His will and to trust in His gospel alone for salvation and make visible in our life and the lifestyle that we live the, the urgency of the gospel. To lead like Jesus is to be leaders who lift up Jesus to our followers. And so I say that today by way of introduction. To lead like Jesus is to be leaders who lift up Jesus to our followers, to our children, to our co-workers, to our church family. So today we see more of this from Joshua in chapter 24. As he gathers now, it's not just the, the leaders from 23. Now it, the indication is he... He gathers all the tribes of Israel, and whether everybody from Israel came or not, he seems to bring at least the elders and the judges and more of the leaders, and maybe there's some other onlookers, but he gathers them in a place called Shechem. And he reminds them in this moment, in his old age, of redemptive history. To, to look back, if you will, so they can go forward, to Look 
back at what God has done so they can go forward in covenant faithfulness to God. We are going to come to this text today and we're going to see what Joshua says and we're going to leave ourselves, we're going to finish today with it apparently unresolved. Everything in front of us unresolved. But we're going to join Joshua to do one thing today. One thing and one thing only. And that's this. We're going to join Joshua in looking back. Now this is important. This is imperative for the Christian because what we see here is what the scriptures reveal about the story of God. So we're going to look back. All right, one thing today. Looking back. Looking back at what? Looking back at redemptive history. Now, this is a term, if you've been in our church any amount of time, you've probably heard me say the story of God, the redemptive story, the, the, the redemptive narrative of Scripture. When you hear a term like that, you might often wonder, what's he talking about? What is that? What is redemptive history? I'm going to allow a famous theologian to define it for you. And he's going to define it in a very theological way. John Frame says redemptive history is that series of events by which God redeems his people from sin. A narrative fulfilled in Christ. It is the principle, listen, it's the principal subject matter of Scripture. Redemptive history constitutes the mighty acts of God that he performs for the sake of his people. Those acts by which people come to know that he is the Lord. I tend to stand in full agreement with Frame that redemptive history is the principal subject matter of Scripture. So let me put this in one simple phrase for you. These are my words. Redemptive history is the story of the loving God bringing sinful people to himself through Jesus Christ. It's the story of a loving God bringing sinful people to himself through Jesus Christ. And my friends, to our church family, the redemptive story is the principal subject matter of the Bible. The principal subject matter of the Bible is a loving God bringing sinful people to himself through Jesus Christ. But this story does not first unfold in the earthly life of Christ. In the book of Joshua, we see the redemptive work of God in bringing his people Israel into the land he promised to their father Abraham. So looking back, listen very carefully, looking back on redemptive history was absolutely necessary for Israel. And so notice what Joshua says here in chapter 24. Bear with me now. Try to dig in with me. If this is the principal matter of Scripture, then it's important that we have a firm grasp on this. Look at verse 1 of chapter 24. And Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and called for the elders of Israel and for the heads and for their judges and for their officers. And they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said unto all the people, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Your fathers dwelt on the other side of the flood in old time, even Terah, the father of Abraham, and the father of Nacor. And they served other gods. And I took your father Abraham from the other side of the flood and led him throughout all the land of Canaan and multiplied his seed and gave him Isaac 
and I gave unto Isaac, Jacob, and Esau. And I gave unto Esau, Mount Seir, to possess it. But Jacob and his children went down into Egypt. Now, we're going to see 13 verses here, but let's stop at verse 4 for a moment. If I was to take redemptive history, the principal matter of Scripture, and I was to divide it into categories for historical purposes, I would simply begin with this text, with where the Lord starts, with Abraham and the patriarchs. Abraham and the patriarchs. Now, this matters, so bear with me for a moment. Let me flesh this out a little bit for you. The Lord, by way of Joshua to Israel, reminds them of Abraham's family line. It was a family line of pagans. Did you notice that in the text? They worshipped other gods. It was a pagan family. Yet on the other side of the flood, the text says, God took Abraham, he called him out of the worship of false gods, and God called Abraham to the worship of the one true God. He did it in such a unique way. You can see that in Genesis chapter 12, all the way through specifically verse 15, that God calls Abraham in a unique way, but he calls Abraham to be the father of a, of a, of a mighty nation. But Abraham isn't just a father to Israel. Old and New Testament tells us that Abraham is the father of all who come to God in faith. So the story of Abraham is about all of the faithful, all the, the ones who are faith-filled to God. But the story tells us not just about Abraham, but about Isaac, his twin boys, Jacob and Esau, along with the land that God gave to Esau. And following the, 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 the historical aspect of Jacob and his children going to Egypt, and all of this is laid out. And the reason it is is because Joshua is saying, hey, do you remember that God promised this to Abraham, and you're living in the land that God promised to you? But you need to know that God didn't just promise Abraham and boom, there it was. And now there you are. And so the Lord next reminds the children of Israel in this moment of the exodus. The exodus for you and I is a pattern of redemption. It's a pattern of redemption. Look at verse 5. I sent Moses also and Aaron and I plagued Egypt according to that which I did among them. And afterward I brought you out and I brought your fathers out of Egypt. And ye came unto the sea and the Egyptians pursued after your fathers with chariots and horsemen under the Red Sea. And when they cried unto the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians and brought the sea upon them and covered them. And your eyes have seen what I have done in Egypt. What is the Lord doing in this moment, these final moments of, of Joshua's life? The Lord is reminding Israel once again that they were in bondage in Egypt. But also that God had led them out, of which we get the story of how that happened at the Red Sea, but the mention of Moses and Aaron is very intentional here. Now listen, this is really important to our understanding of Scripture. God had sent Moses and Aaron. Moses was a prophet who went to Pharaoh. He was also a prophet who went to God, meaning in a, in a prophetic sense, Moses spoke for God to people, like prophets would do. Moses also serves as a priest because Moses on many occasions intercedes for Israel to God. Well, his brother Aaron eventually serves as a priest going to God for the people. But Aaron is an absolute failure at being this priest. 
he led the people to create a golden calf. His sons, on their first day in office as a priest, went into the, the, the temple. And, and on their first day, they offer strange fires to the Lord, and the Lord kills them. Aaron and his boys are absolute failures at being priests. Moses, as great as he was, Moses failed. Moses was a failure. He didn't even get to the, the promised land. And the story of God is being unfolded to us as a story of people who are a part of a family by faith. And those people find themselves in bondage, yet God is delivering them. And, and they're in desperate need of a faithful prophet and priest. Because all the prophets they have are failures, and all the priests they have are failures. And the next portion of the story began to speak to Moses' time in leadership, but the portion doesn't mention Moses. Instead, the focus is on life in the wilderness and the temptation that comes. Notice in uh, this third portion here in the, in the text, it's, it's what we call new life and wilderness temptation. Look at the, the latter part of verse 7 there. And he dwelt in the wilderness a long season. And I brought you into the land of the Amorites, which dwelt on the other side of the Jordan. And they fought with you. And I gave them into your hand, that ye might possess their land. And I destroyed them from before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and warred against Israel. And sent and called Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I would not hearken unto Balaam. Therefore he blessed you still. So I delivered you out of his hand. Now, I'm curious here. I'm letting the story unfold as Joshua unfolds it for Israel. I'm curious if since verse number 5, if you began to get a little bit of the picture here. The picture is that in the redemptive story, there is significant opposition to God. There's a significant opposition to God, His purposes. I mean, it was Abraham's descendants were in Canaan, but they ended up in Egypt. God led the exodus from Egypt, but the Egyptian chariots and horsemen pursued to stop them. In the wilderness, the Amorites fought against God. Balak, the king of Moab, warred against Israel and tried to get Balaam to curse Israel. But remember, Balaam had a donkey. But God turned all that in the text. God turned all of that into a blessing. The opposition comes, but God still, He still is accomplishing His purpose because the story shows us the constant attempts by the powers of darkness to stop God's redemptive plan. Well, Joshua's story from God continues, and it continues in this category that I've called into the good land. That was the language of verse chapter 23, the good land. So God brings Israel through the time of the patriarchs. He calls Abraham out of a pagan family. He even brings them into into bondage in Egypt because of a famine. And there we get a pattern of redemption. He takes them into the wilderness. People try to kill them. People try to war against them. But God stops that. Even somebody that wants to curse them, God takes the cursing and makes it a blessing. And now God brings them into a good land. Look at verse 11. And ye went over Jordan and came unto Jericho. Notice the opposition. And men of Jericho fought against you. The Amorites, Perizzites, Canaanites, the Hittites, and the Girgashites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And I delivered them into your hand. And I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out from before you, even the two kings of the Amorites. But not with thy sword, nor with thy bow. And I have given you a land for which ye did not labor. 
and cities which ye built not, and ye dwell in them, of the vineyards and olive yards which ye planted not, do, which ye planted not, do ye eat? When they entered the land, we're told, immediate opposition. But the, the text says something unique here. God sent a hornet before them. I don't know about you, but I hate bees. Right? You want to make me move fast, send a swarm of bees after me. But God sends a hornet. And, and this is in reference to, if you will, Exodus 23 in verse 28 where we find these words from God. And I will send hornets before thee which shall drive out the Hivite and the Canaanite and the Hittite from before thee. What is this hornet? <laughs> well, the battle motif that we studied of Joshua 6, chapter 6 and chapter 11 say nothing about hornets. So it's probably best to see this in a metaphorical sense. The hornet is a metaphor for the terror and the panic that the enemies of God and Canaan would experience like you experience when bees surround you. It's God's, the terror of God. It's the, it's the, the panic of the enemies of God. In fact, Rahab in Joshua chapter 2 told the Israelite spies of that terror and panic, didn't she? When in Joshua 2 and verse 9 she said, Unto them, I know that the Lord hath given you the land, and that your terror is fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land faint because of you. Verse 11, And as soon as we had heard these things, our hearts did melt, neither did there remain any more courage in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and in earth beneath. This is the, this is the terror. God had sent this before them. And this God had given them a land. But did you notice the text? It was a land they didn't work for. They moved into cities that they didn't build. They ate of vineyards and olive, vine olive yards, the text said. The, these, these vineyards that they didn't plant. In fact, they didn't even do anything. It wasn't their swords. It wasn't their bows. It wasn't their horsemen. It wasn't their military. It wasn't anything they did. God said, I did it all. I did it all. And so what we find here is this, this looking back by Joshua to say, listen, Israel, I'm dying. I'm dying. I'm going the way of the earth. But I want to remind you that God called a man out of pagan worship and promised him a family of faith. A family more than the stars of heaven. And I promised that I would take his family into a land. And I did. But then I took you from that land and I took you to Egypt where you were, where you were in bondage. Seems like the plan of God is a mess, right? God says, no. To show you my power to redeem, I saved you out of Egypt. I delivered you. I took you across bodies of water. I even fought for you in the wilderness when you were, when you were rebellious. When you were complaining I fought for you. I even took you into Canaan when, I, when you couldn't do anything to get there. You couldn't get across the Jordan River. You couldn't do anything. When you got there, you didn't accomplish anything. You didn't win any battles. You didn't do anything. I did it all. What God is telling us in, in this book of the Bible, what God is telling us, he is telling us what his story looks like. Let me just be honest with you. The story of God 
does not end at the end of the Bible. The story of God begins at creation, visible, and it ends at the new creation. And so when we think of the story of God, I I want to encourage you, I want to encourage our church to see God's unfolding work of redemption that He is doing. And listen very carefully. God is writing and has written a story that you and I cannot even understand. Eyes have not seen it, ears have not heard it, nor have entered into the hearts of man the things that God has prepared. So as Christians who have wrestled with the book of Joshua, we see in these final moments a small portion of the story of God's redemption. And it's a redemptive story by which all of God's people enjoy. Now you might be sitting here today and you might be thinking, I, I fought through a torrential downpour to get here for this, for you to tell me a story? I have come today with a heavy heart to hear a story. Why did we come to church to be told a story? This isn't my story. This is Israel. This is no connection to my life. This is an old Israelite sitting around a fire like an old man and telling a story. But the Christian here today needs to think more biblically about this. Because this is just a small portion of, hear me, of what we will call a repetitive story. It's a repetitive story that goes all through Scripture, and it is still going on today around us. And here's why I want you to think about today very quickly. Number one, when it comes to the redemptive story, God's redemptive story has God as the hero. God's redemptive story has God as the hero. I won't spend a lot of time here. But if you go home today and you just read through the first 13 verses, you will notice, maybe as I read it, you will notice in the text The times that God says, I, or speaking of himself, says he. In some cases, it's the words aren't there, but it's it's stated once in a series of moments. And so if you take all of that, at least 23 times in 13 verses, God is the initiator of all the blessings on Israel. In the story, though, guess what? I want to mess up your view of humanity for a moment. Every time man is mentioned, there's trouble. There's trouble. There's problems. There's heartache. There's famine. There's bondage. And every time there's a deliverance, it's God. Every time there's, there's, there's heartache in the story... It's man. And every time there's deliverance, it's God. I I would say that that helps us to understand that the Bible, listen, is about God's creation and man's mess-ups and Christ's saving. Now imagine Israel hearing Joshua tell this. And they're sitting there going, wait a minute. Come on. Come on, Joshua. Didn't we do... You know, the marching around Jericho? Wait, wait, wait. Didn't we 
Didn't we do the, you know, the, 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 the crossing of the Jordan? Didn't we do? Nope. Nope. You think marching is how you took Jericho? You, you, think, you, you think you accomplished all this? All this land of Canaan stuff? You think you accomplished all that because, because you did something with your sword or your bow? So the story is clear to say, no, no, no. You didn't do any of that. God did all of that. Your role was simply to cooperate with God. To cooperate with God. God is the one who sent terror. God is the one who brought walls down. God is the one who caused kings to fall. God is the one who who, who stands the sun still. God is the one who does all the, the work. It is the mighty acts of God in His redemptive story. Man is the messer-upper, and man is the cooperator. That's it. That's it. So, it is in your Christian life. So it is in my Christian life. It has never been me. It has never been you. It has always been God. There's one hero of the, of the story. And as much as grandparents, we encourage you to live a life of faith. It is never you as the hero. It is God as the hero. And that's important for us to drill down deep in our minds. Because every one of us, every one of us in some way has a hero complex. Every one of us wants to go into the telephone booth and come out as Superman. Every one of us thinks it's our parenting, it's our grandparenting, it's our leading, it's our teaching, it's our work, it's our this, it's our that. But the story of God from the beginning of eternity past until the new creation to come has one hero, friends, and it is still God. We have to remind ourselves of that. Anything good in me is God in me. Anything good in me is God in me. There is no boasting. Israel didn't get to pat themselves on the back. Joshua says, oh, no, 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 guys. It wasn't your swords or bows. It was God. Number two. God's redemptive story highlights two sons. One is a failure and the other son is victorious. God's redemptive story highlights two sons. One is a failure and the other son is victorious. Say, who are the two sons? Well, the first son in the, in the narrative here is Israel. You say, Israel's a son? Yeah, I want you to notice Exodus 4. And thou shalt say unto Pharaoh, Thus saith the Lord, Israel is my son, even my firstborn. God calls Israel his son. And the prophet Hosea is told by God later on in the Old Testament and in Hosea 11, when Israel was a child, then I loved him and called him my son. I called my son out of Egypt. Now stay with me for just a moment. I, I want to, I really want to help us to understand the Bible old and new for a minute. Israel is the beloved son of God who is called to make known salvation to the world. Let me say this again. Israel is the beloved Son of God who's called to make known salvation to the world. But Israel consistently failed at her purpose. 
Israel is the son, listen, in whom God is not pleased because of her covenantal unfaithfulness. She, she, Israel, the country, the nation, is God's child in whom he is not pleased. Yet God loves Israel. And he's faithful to his covenant promises. And God the Father chastises Israel over and over and over. And he chastises and he gives mercy and he sends a a judge to deliver. And he sends a prophet to teach. And he sends a king to correct. And God is constantly chastising and giving mercy and calling Israel back to to himself. And listen, for you and I, Israel serves as a type, a picture, a shadow of the greater son to come. Israel serves as a type. Israel's a failure. Israel's unfaithful. Israel is idolatrous. Israel is constantly worshiping false gods, and they get it right, and then they fall apart. They get it right, and they fall apart. They are a shadow. They're not the real son. They're they're the shadow that points us to the greater son to come. And this son, hear me, will not fail. He's victorious. So when you read the the Old Testament, and you're looking at Joshua, and you go, what do I do with this? Look at the failing son. Look at him. He never gets it right. But the other son in the drama is Jesus. No book of the New Testament, by the way, for that matter, no book of the New Testament speaks more more clearly to this that Jesus is the greater son than the, than the, the gospel of Matthew. The father, as the father, is not pleased with Israel. Listen. Notice what he says in Matthew 3 about Jesus. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Israel, I am not pleased. You have been unfaithful to the covenant. Jesus, in you, I am well pleased. And so through Christ's sinless life, death, and resurrection, Jesus accomplishes, this is an important point, Jesus accomplishes all that Israel failed to accomplish. Through the life, death, and resurrection, Jesus accomplishes all that Israel failed to accomplish. Now listen to this. Israel goes to Egypt. After his birth, Jesus goes to Egypt. Israel comes through the water of the Red Sea and the Jordan River. Jesus comes through the water of John's baptism. Israel goes into the wilderness and fails in the face of temptation. Jesus goes into the wilderness and is tempted yet does not sin. See, God establishes Israel as the kingdom, as the kingdom, yet all of their kings, all of their kings failed. Even their best kings had absolute moments of collapse. Yet Jesus is the king who fulfills all the kingship. Jesus fulfills the ministry of the prophets. Jesus is the perfect high priest who in juxtaposition to to Aaron and, and to Nadab and Abihu, Jesus offers himself. As Israel is exiled to Babylon, Jesus is exiled from the Father to in his death on the cross. Israel is restored to blessing and life in Canaan after 70 years in Babylonian exile. And they go right back to false worship. But Jesus is restored. Jesus is restored in his resurrection. And he offers salvation, blessings, and eternal life to all who believe on him. See, as the story of scripture is the story of two sons. One who's an absolute failure and one who is absolutely victorious. In every part of Israel's history, 
is redone in the life and ministry of Jesus. And Jesus is victorious in every area where Israel had failed. Now, I want you to see thirdly today. I want you to see God's redemptive story as the drama of the victorious God in the face of satanic opposition. We'll, we'll conclude here today. This is where it gets maybe extremely applicable to us. The opposition never stops. It never stops. It, the opposition in the story of Scripture never, ever stops. And it hasn't stopped today. The story doesn't ever stop showing us the opposition to Jesus. Hear me. Listen very carefully. Satan could not stop creation, so he deceives Adam and Eve. He thought he could stop God's redemptive plan from the very beginning, and all through the story of Scripture, Satan, the villain, tries to stop God's redeeming work, page after page after page, story after story after story, and it seems, it seems in a moment like he's got God's number, and then boom, God accomplishes his purpose. Then there it is. There is that moment. That moment unlike any other in the Bible. There he is. The Son of God. The Redeemer. On the cross. And he gives up his life since no man could take it from him. And there on the cross, the Son of God is dead. He's taken down from the cross and he's buried. Once again, Satan thinks that he's finally done it. I mean, this has, been the, this has been the goal all along. He has stopped the purpose of God. He has stopped the redemptive plan because Jesus is buried and nobody overcomes the grave. Nobody defeats the grave. Death is undefeated. The purpose of God is down on the mat and the referee counts one and Jesus is still dead on day one. Day two, Jesus is still dead. But before he can get to the count of three on the third day, Jesus came out of the grave and death is defeated. All sin is paid and Satan is a loser and God is victorious. This is the story of God, friends. God is victorious. He will not be stopped. It seems dark today. Our world seems dark. It seems bleak and hopeless. And man, is it going to get any better? Our hope lies nowhere else. It doesn't lie in a king. It doesn't lie in a ruler. It doesn't lie in a philosophy. It lies in Jesus. That's it. That's the story of God. Opposition. Man, they think they got it. Satan thinks he's won. But as I've tried to tell you over and over again, the story of God shows victorious God. But you know what it also shows? Satan is a loser. He's a loser. Now I conclude with this. The gospel of God and Christianity is this, that God invites you and me, to enter into that story by faith in Christ. If you place your faith in Christ as your Savior, 
you are united to him. So as Jesus died, so you spiritually, your sins died with him. As he was buried, so were your sins buried. As he was raised in the resurrection, your sins weren't raised, but you were raised in new and eternal life in Christ. And so as Jesus has been raised, so new, new life is in every Christian. And as Jesus has been raised, listen, here's the promise, that one day your body will be raised as well in the resurrection. This is the gospel. And you'll be raised from the dead to eternal fellowship in heaven. Now this is God's story. And this can be your story if you place your faith in Christ as your Savior. If you have done so, if you know Christ as your Savior, if you've trusted Jesus for salvation, hear me, this isn't a story. This is your story. This is your story. You remember how this story started? In Joshua 24? If Christ is your Savior, guess what? You're a part of the family of faith who has promised a land that is fairer than day. And we're heading towards that land that's been promised to us. And the opposition seems strong. But the story of Scripture anchors us to this. God is victorious. He will not fail to accomplish His salvific purpose in your life. Now, because it's God's story, He is in charge of every result. He is in charge of every minute. You see, there's not a moment, listen, there's not a moment of my life that is outside of the control of my God. His story demands my understanding of that. Any good in my life in this story is not me, it's God. And anything that comes in my life that I might deem bad is God's redeeming and working and molding and shaping purpose in me so that in God's story, I get no glory in it. He gets all the glory. No victory is me. It's God. And so hear me. If you're, in part, if you're a part of God's story, He's in charge of every minute. And He's in charge of every moment. And He's in charge of every molecule. He is in charge of the entire mission. So, you say, well, man, if I'm a part of God's story, everything ends, you know, it's, it's all one giant fairy tale. Well, <laughs> it doesn't feel like that sometimes, does it? Here's what I'll tell you. You will face opposition this week, absolutely. You know why you face opposition and you absolutely will face it? Is because that's part of the story. It's part of the story. But you do not have to be defeated because victory is secure. What has been true of all Scripture is still true. God is not losing. He's not losing in your life. He's not lost control in your life. He never has. He never will. He is accomplishing His purposes. And you can trust, as John the Apostle said, in your life and in the story of God, greater is He that is in you than He that is in the world. This is the story. So you say, what do I do with that? I'll give you one idea today of what to do with all that. Because I, sometimes I look at it and go, I don't even know what to do with it. You know what you do with a good story? You tell it. You tell it. You tell the story. Over and over 
and over again. If somebody will let you tell your story, hey, tell me, tell me your story. Where are you from? Where did you grow up? Man, if the story of God isn't woven in that, we're not telling our true story. What do you do with a good story? You tell it. Anybody who will listen. Anybody who will listen. And you invite them into the story. So why does all this matter? It matters because it's the chief matter of Scripture. You might see the Bible today as this book of list of things to do and don't. And there are parts of that. If you want to enjoy the story, there are parts of, hey, you, God, God says don't do that. But the story, the story is about God. It is about redemption. It is about the culmination of that story in the new creation to come. That's the story. That's the Bible. Thanks for listening today to the story of God's people. Your story. My story. Thanks for listening today. If you're listening for the first time, we would love to hear from you. Maybe you have a question about the gospel of Jesus. If so, we'd like you to send us an email at hello at ravenswoodbaptist.org. If you're a regular listener to our podcast and you would like to donate to the media ministry and outreach ministry of Ravenswood, your gift would allow us to do more in an effective way to get the gospel out. Thank you for partnering with us in ministry in Chicago and around the world.